Before They Were Beatles, Episode 3, George, Paul and Richie. This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is the story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host... Alan J. Porter. Part 1. February 1956, George Harrison. On the 24th of February, George Harrison officially became a teenager as he celebrated his 13th birthday. George was born at 12 Arnold Grove, Wavertree, Liverpool on the 24th of February 1943. He was the youngest of three children born to Harry and Louise Harrison. While George's surroundings and upbringing were distinctly working class, his father was a bus driver, they were comfortable and probably the most supportive and normal of all the Beatle families. When George was six, the family moved to a house at 25 Upton Green in Speak, where George attended the local Dovedale Primary School at the same time that John Lennon was there, although George was several years behind John, and the two never met while they were at the school. While not an outstanding student, he did well enough to pass the entrance exams for the prestigious Liverpool Institute and started at the city centre school in 1954. Riding to the school in his father's number 86 bus between Speak Boulevard and Mount Street, a journey of just under an hour, George soon made the acquaintance of another Liverpool Institute pupil and Speak resident, one James Paul McCartney. Liverpool Institute was old enough for Dickens to have performed public readings there, but its once grand building was fading behind its imposing Greek facade and it was generally in poor repair and stocked with outdated school fittings. It was not unusual to find desks marked with initials scratched into the surface more than 40 years previously. After the Second World War, the school building had been partitioned to provide homes for a dance and a drama academy and the fledgling Liverpool Art College. George was not a particularly memorable pupil in his early years, being quiet and somewhat introverted. But the passive behaviour soon transformed into signs of rebellion as homework started to be completed on the bus journey home or he would get his parents' approval signature on his report card forged by the obliging mother of a friend so his own parents wouldn't find out that his grades were slipping. Within the space of a couple of terms, George and his friends, Arthur Kelly and Tony Workman, were known as truants, a good source of smutty stories and the leader of the kids who had swapped playground candy for a smoke behind the bike sheds. The gang of truants would spend their afternoons at JC Cinema in Clayton Square, starting to feed George's interest in movies. At the age of 12, George was attracted by a poster to visit the 1955 British Grand Prix motor race that was being held that year at Liverpool's Aintree Circuit. He made the journey by bus and train to watch the event and was captivated by the sights and sounds of motor racing. It would remain a lifelong passion. George took to motor racing like most other Liverpool boys took to soccer, but instead of the stars of the two local soccer teams on his bedroom walls, George had pictures of race cars, many of which had been taken with his own faithful box camera. And of course, there was music, and Elvis in particular. Thanks to Arthur Kelly's sister, Barbara, whose fiancé was a ship's engineer, George had access to a steady supply of American rock and roll records long before they were released to the UK market, if they ever were. 
In fact, most teenagers in Liverpool knew someone who had some connection to one of the many shipping companies that traded through the busy dock area. As the skiffle craze spread through Liverpool, George discussed forming a band with his brother Pete, who already owned a battered guitar well past its prime. Arthur Kelly, kind-hearted grandmother, made the first investment in George Harrison's musical ambitions by buying him a threepenny washboard from a local market, but the idea of forming a group never really got beyond the talking stage. But as he became a teenager, George's parents noticed his new interest was starting to take a hold on George. He was expressing it in a passion for guitars. He was bringing home school notebooks covered with drawings of guitars of all shapes and sizes. To quote George, When I was 13 or 14, I was sat at the back of class trying to draw guitars in notebooks. I was totally into guitars. And then I heard about this kid at school who had a guitar for sale at £3.10. It was just a little acoustic roundhole number, but I got the £3.10 from my mother. That was a lot of money for us back then. As George recalls, his parents managed to find the cash and George was soon the proud owner of a beat-up Dutch Egmond flat-top acoustic guitar that was held together by a single screw attaching the neck to the body. Before strumming a single note, he started striking poses in front of the mirror in imitation of Elvis. To George, the guitar felt natural, as if it had always belonged in his hands. It didn't take long for the posing to be replaced by the first halting steps to try and produce a tune. Unfortunately, George's admittedly clumsy first steps were too much for the precarious hold of the screw, which was soon dislodged. Frustrated and unable to reattach the neck, George put the guitar in a cupboard and promptly forgot about it. After a gap of almost three months, George retrieved his broken guitar from the cupboard where it had been discarded. He handed it over to his older brother Pete in the hope that he could succeed in reattaching the neck. Luckily, Pete Harrison's skills with a screwdriver and patience exceeded those of his younger sibling and effective repairs were soon made. George now began to practice in earnest. George had begun to show an aversion to formal teaching that was impacting his schooling, but he was determined to teach himself to master the guitar. Armed with a series of guitar manuals, including Burt Whedon's Play in a Day book, over the next 18 months, George soon realised that he wasn't a natural musician, but with encouragement from the family and his, and his mother, Louise in particular, he would practice at every available opportunity, often playing so long that his fingers would start to bleed. George's devotion to his new passion spurred his brother Pete to dig out his own old guitar out of storage and join in the practice sessions, and soon the pair could be found picking out tunes from favourite songs heard on the radio or the few records that they had access to. As George recalls, Whatever rock and roll record was playing on the radio, we'd try and listen to it. You couldn't even get a cup of sugar, never mind a rock and roll record. I'd study the way the words were written and sung. Then I'd go over them myself. I bought a little book with all the chords in it. I couldn't make head nor tail of it, but I forced my fingers to put out the right chords. As a side note, George's mention of the lack of sugar is a reference to the fact that the rationing of food introduced during World War II in the UK had only recently been abolished. As George mentioned Bert Whedon's Play in a Day book, I thought it might be worth sidetracking for a few minutes to discuss Bert and his book. Born in London in 1920, young Bert Whedon started to learn guitar at the age of 12 with the aim of becoming a professional musician. During the 1930s, he led groups such as the Blue Cumberland Rhythm Boys and Bert Whedon and his Harlem Hotshots before making his first solo appearance at East Ham Town Hall in 1939. He later worked with many leading performers and performed with various big bands and orchestras. He joined the BBC show band in the 1950s when he began to be featured as a soloist. He also worked as a session musician on many early British rock and roll records for artists such as Adam Faith, Billy Fury and Tommy Steele, as well as working as an accompanist to visiting American singers such as Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland and Nat King Cole. It is estimated that he performed on over 5,000 BBC radio broadcasts during his career. His guitar tutorial book, 
Play in a Day, was first published in the mid-1950s and sold a million copies, and it has remained in print ever since. Playing style focused on both rhythm and melody and was influenced by the jazz guitarist of the 1950s and notably Les Paul. Whedon placed a lot of emphasis on the control of tone and wanted to make the guitar the star of his music. was highly influential among many British rock guitarists of the 50s, 60s and 70s. And here's just a short list of folks who have cited Whedon and his book as a foundational influence. Eric Clapton, Brian May, Pete Townsend, Keith Richards, Sting, Hank Marvin, Mike Oldfield, Mark Knopfler, Jimmy Page and of course Paul McCartney, George Harrison and John Lennon. Burt Whedon passed away in 2012 at the age of 91, and I think it's fair to say that without Burt Whedon that the UK's contribution to the evolution of rock music would have been a lot less. Part 2. James Paul McCartney. June 1956. Across the golf course from Mendips and John Lennon, another music-mad teenager celebrated his 14th birthday on the 18th, a certain James Paul McCartney. Young James was born on the 18th of June 1942, and with keeping with family tradition, was given the same first name as his father, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather. To avoid family confusion, the eldest McCartney son was referred to by his middle name, Paul. His father Jim had at one time held musical ambitions, playing piano and trumpet. He even led his own band, Jim Max Jazz Band, playing many of the same dance halls around Liverpool that his son was destined to frequent. However, his dream of a life in show business never really materialised, and he drifted into the cotton industry to provide a steady living wage. At the outbreak of World War II, he started working at the Napier Engineering Works as a lathe turner and helped fight the fires left from German bombing raids as a volunteer fireman. Paul's mother had been a nursing sister in charge of a maternity wing where Paul, and 18 months later, his brother Michael, were born. She left the hospital to raise her young family and worked as a district health visitor assisting local families left destitute by the bombing. After the war ended, Jim returned to his previous job as a cotton salesman while Paul's mother, Mary, became a midwife. But the cotton industry was in rapid decline and Jim's earnings suffered. Times were hard for the McCartney family, and they often moved as the demands on Mary's time and the location of her rounds changed. Eventually, they ended up in the area of Liverpool known as Speak. In 1936, the hamlet of Speak was chosen as the location of a new model town of 35,000 houses. And despite being planned with parks, playing fields and enough schools to go around, it was in fact a fairly soulless place. For the McCartney boys, school was the nearby Stockton Wood Road Primary School. As Speak continued to expand, the school was soon overcrowded and even held the dubious honour of being the largest junior school in Britain with 1,500 pupils on its books. The solution to the overcrowding was to bus a select number of students, including the McCartney boys, over half an hour away to the Joseph Williams Primary School in Bellevale, Gattaca, another purpose-built suburb. In the early 50s, the McCartney family moved once again, this time to 12 Ardwick Road in Speak on the expanding eastern edge of the estate. The road and the surrounding fields were a permanent building site. 
1953, Paul was one of only four pupils from the Joseph Williams School to score high enough points in the state-mandated 11-plus examination to gain entrance into the prestigious Liverpool Institute, the city's top grammar school. The daily commute to the city centre was soon enlivened by the presence of a young neighbour, George Harrison. The two soon fell into conversation, and once they discovered a common interest in music and guitars, developed a fast friendship, despite being in different years at the school. Although only one year ahead at school, Paul tended to look down on his younger friend, and sometimes could be a little patronising. Paul recalled, We lived a bus stop apart. I'd get on the bus to school, and at the next stop, George would get on. We were close in age and had the same interests, so it was only natural for us to sit next to each other. He was about 18 months younger, which is a big difference at that age. I guess it's a failing of mine that I always tended to talk down to him, as I'd known him as a young kid. The bus ride became a place to swap stories and ideas. Paul McCartney has always claimed that this daily bus ride served as the inspiration for the middle break of A Day in the Life. George recalls that Paul and he were already getting together for the occasional jam session even at this early stage in their friendship. Paul and I used to get together and play a bit. Just schoolboys. There was no groups involved. That came later. 1955 saw a change in Mary McCartney's job that meant that McCartney family moved for one last time to number 20 Fortlin Road in the nearby suburb of Allerton. Although not far from Speak, Allerton was a world apart in attitude and pretensions. Astutely class conscious, the residents of Allerton strove to be firmly middle class and Mary McCartney soon was affecting her speech and trying to better herself in an almost identical way to John Lennon's aunt Mimi living across the golf course in nearby Walton. Despite their father's background as a musician and band leader, neither of the McCartney boys showed much inclination towards a career in music as children. Their father did arrange piano lessons for them, but made the mistake of scheduling the lessons during the summer vacation when young Paul and Mike McCartney would have rather been outside running around with their mates. So the kind-hearted Jim McCartney let them quit on the condition that Paul tried out for a spot at Liverpool Cathedral Choir. The story is that Paul deliberately cracked his voice during the audition, although prophetically enough, he did spend a short time as a chorister at the Church of St Chad's Lake, located just off a certain Penny Lane. Around late 1954 or early 1955, Paul inherited an old trumpet from his father and learnt to pick out a few tunes, such as When the Saints Go Marching In. he preferred singing and realised that a trumpet was not exactly conducive to being able to sing. The other reason suggested for Paul's abandonment of the trumpet is that it gave him blisters on his lips which didn't look attractive and would quote put off any girls. 
He traded in the trump for a guitar of uncertain heritage, a Zenith Model 17 acoustic with F-holes, which at first he couldn't figure out. As Paul recalls, It wasn't until I found a picture of Slim Whitman, who was also left-handed, and saw that I had the guitar the wrong way round. Paul had the instrument restring so he could play it upside down. Part 3. Richard Starkey, July 1956. On the 7th of July, across town in the area of Liverpool that's known as the Dingle, a young Richard Starkey celebrated his 16th birthday. Young Richard first saw the light of day in the front bedroom of his parents' house at 9 Midran Street. The Starkey family had been residents of the Dingle for well over a century, but young Richie always seemed to strive for better things in life and often expressed a desire to grow up and have, as he put it, a semi in a posh part of Liverpool. For reasons that he never fully understood, Richie's parents divorced when he was just three years old and he was left to be raised single-handedly by his mother Elsie. A year after the divorce, the Starkeys moved to 10 Admiral Grove, where the rent was cheaper, plus it had the advantage of being close to Elsie's place of work, the nearby Empress Pub. Located a short five-minute walk away from their new house was St Silas's Infant School, which was to be Richie's first experience of education, for a short time at least. For at age six, he was rushed to hospital with what at first was diagnosed as a burst appendix, but soon progressed to peritonitis. Little Richie slipped into a coma for nearly two months. The road to recovery was long, and his only distraction was the ward band, where Richie was always the first to volunteer to hit the tin drum. Richie returned to school, where he was placed in a class with kids a year younger, but his progress was still slow. Even private tutoring didn't help his unorthodox spelling, and he wasn't allowed to take the 11 plus exam for the local grammar school, and was instead placed at the Dinglevale Secondary Modern. To escape his difficult educational experience and continuing illnesses, Richie became a devotee of the cinema and the westerns in particular. His first musical hero was Gene Autry, and he rapidly developed a liking for American-style country and western music, which, like rock and roll, was more prevalent in Liverpool than in other British cities due to the influence of the transatlantic merchant seamen. However, by 1952, Richie's absences from school, 34 occasions in one term alone, were no longer purely due to his health. Truancy was often to blame as Richie discovered cigarettes and alcohol, and the matinee cowboys had been replaced by science fiction movies and role models such as James Dean. Things improved for Richie when his mother married, with Richie's permission, Harry Graves, painter and decorator from Romford in Essex. Unfortunately, a trip to meet Harry's family in the south of England resulted in another hospital stay after a soaking during a thunderstorm quickly developed into chronic pleurisy. Moved from hospital to hospital, Richie eventually spent a considerable time at Heswell's Children's Hospital on the Wirral Peninsula across the River Mersey from his hometown. Deemed well enough to go home by 1955, his schooling was now officially over and employment beckoned. His first job offer would be a delivery boy for British Rail, provided he agreed to a brief secondment at Riversdale Technical College to complete his education. He agreed to the educational requirements and attended a few classes, but then failed the medical. Next try was a barman waiter on the ferry across the Mersey, later immortalised in song by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Goes on day after day. Hearts torn in every way. So ferry cross the mercy. Cause this land's the place I love. And here I'll stay. People, they rush everywhere 
Richie worked hard and played hard too, especially at the weekends. The parties helped along by Richie's ready access to the miniature bottles of liquor served on the ferry. Unfortunately, after one such weekend party, still fueled with Dutch courage, he told his supervisor the truth about where his supply of drinks came from and he was promptly sacked. Richie's stepfather managed to persuade the owners of a nearby engineering company, Henry Hunt & Sons, manufacturers of gymnasium and swimming pool equipment, to take on his stepson as an apprentice joiner. But by 1956, the 16-year-old Richard Starkey was a working apprentice with a liking for the good things in life and a seemingly natural talent for tapping out the rhythm for almost any song he heard. It also taught himself a basic three-chord trick on the guitar and a similar one on the piano. But he lacked the interest or the application to take these early musical experiments any further. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, The Beatles, an extract from A Day in the Life, Louis Armstrong, When the Saints Go Marching In, and Jerry and the Pacemakers, Ferry Across the Mersey. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles, or email me at alan, that's A-L-A-N, at beforetheywerebeatles.com. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.